for pretty much everyone I looked at in this story, their salary is only a really small percentage of their overall compensation between bonuses and long-term incentive packages that encourage them to make good decisions for the company. The, you know, the vast majority of, of the actual total compensation they make isn't from their salary. So overall, the you know, median CEO of a, a real estate investment trust made about $6 million last year. Now that mainly comes from their bonuses and their incentives, um, but there have been some really interesting sort of uh, trends that have been playing out with compensation since COVID sort of changed everything. It's Monday, which means we're back with Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. Today, Susanna and I chat with one of our reporters about the cover story on last month's issue of The Real Deal's magazine, about the highest earners in real estate. But before we get into that, we wanted to actually try something new this week and go over some of the stories that we were following in the newsroom last week. And I think we have to start with Compass, which has had just a bonkers few weeks. Right. So we knew the company had been losing money throughout 2021, and that's when the housing market was doing really well. And then mid-August, we get those second quarter earnings, and the firm reports some pretty brutal losses. So $101 million for the second quarter, $289 million for the first half of the year. And then CEO Robert Rafkin makes this very ominous statement that Compass, quote, will not run out of cash. So within that hubbub, There have been multiple rounds of layoffs. The firm cut its chief tech officer and its stock is like way down. It dropped below $3. And for contrast, remember when it debuted April Fool's Day, 2021, uh, it was just over $20 per share. So it was a long way to fall. And we're in a downturn with the stock market right now anyway. But I think what's notable about Compass is that we're not seeing any of that recovery on its share price. Right. Because the the markets had their their best month since November 2020 in July, I think. And and Compass just like has not benefited from that. Um, So now the question is, does Compass have the cash on hand to survive a resi market, which is, you know, it has been in rougher waters than it has been over the past few years. Analysts are saying it has enough runway for about a year. But if the market slumps further, that could affect how long it has to last. So it needs to cut costs as much as possible, but it has to do that without alienating its agents. So it's absolutely, it's a balancing act. I think it's tough generally for residential brokerages right now because, you know, demand for mortgages is down, home sales are down, you know, their main product is is struggling. And I think that we're kind of seeing this slowdown in the market and the entire residential market generally. Um, There was a story that we had in South Florida last week about um, rent hikes starting to slow too. Did you see that story? Yeah, I did. Um, That's so interesting because we've been watching the rental market like a hawk, you know, because annual increases have been so high for so long where we were seeing in New York and South Florida markets that are really popping off like 40% year over year increases in rent, 60%. Because remember in 2021, people were signing COVID leases with discounts baked in. So we're waiting for that growth to plateau um, because that could be a signal that, you know, we're reaching this sort of point where eventually rents may come down. 
not there yet. But in South Florida, what our reporters found was there's been a precipitous slowdown since the spring. So I'm going to throw some numbers at you. In March, we were seeing 57% year-over-year growth. In April, that dipped down to 52%, 46% in May, and then 37% in June. So you can visualize that decline. And the reason it's happening, you know, it's probably not representative of the national market. Florida is possibly dealing with people moving out of the state. I'm actually working on a piece right now about New Yorkers who went down to Florida during the pandemic are headed back up to New York and some of them are being called back to work, but others are just, they're just done with Florida. Like it is not their vibe anymore. The weather is too hot. We're entering hurricane season. They don't like the politics and they want to get back to New York culture. That's really interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of these, you know, there were so many housing shifts at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think that we might start to see that kind of reverse or shift again. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, those are some of the stories we're thinking about on the residential front and on the commercial side of things. Susanna, it still seems like people are just talking about this return to office, you know, like they have been for the past two and a half years. Yeah, we're reprising that conversation again. So this is like the fourth or fifth call from corporate America for workers to get back to their cubicles. We're seeing it this week. Wall Street is making this push. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are, in so many words, kind of nudging employees to come back after Labor Day. Um, But sources for other outlets are saying that workers for those firms, they're getting more of a defiant, like, you need to come back full time. They receive memos. So it's it's interesting to see who will come back and who won't. I'm hearing from brokers who are working with clients that are considering moves back or who may work in the financial industry and say they've worked there. They're senior employees. They've worked there for a few decades. They're saying they still have flexibility. And I think this the whole thing sort of like begs the question of who has the power between employers and workers, because for so long it was the workers. We saw, you know, Elon Musk say, okay, you guys have to come back to the office. And then a bunch of Tesla employees um, allowed themselves to be poached. So there is that threat that competition will come in and snap up workers who don't want to go back in. But we're also seeing, you know, the jobs market sort of shift a bit where we're nearing full employment or we're almost there. We're in a technical recession, depending on who you ask. And I think that a lot of these companies are trying to leverage that power and get their workers to work where they want them to. Speaking of the office market, there was actually a huge deal last week that really struck me and was really interesting because, you know, there's been such negative discourse around the office market, you know, since the beginning of 2020. But Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund and a Florida-based commercial investment firm called Workspace Property Trust actually just bought a majority stake in 53 suburban office buildings for $1.1 billion. And this is so interesting because it is this contrarian bet on suburban office properties and the office market in general. And, you know, the headlines that we kind of see is that suburban offices have really struggled and... Some are just saying that that's the kind of lower quality class B, class C, really old office product that, you know, no one is really interested in going to. But these higher end, newer suburban buildings are actually seeing rent increases. And I think some are saying that that's mostly, you know, these buildings were located in Atlanta, Dallas, San Francisco. I think what's interesting about this purchase specifically is that it's betting that while people might not want to be commuting to a downtown area, 
they're still wanting to go into an office that's close to their home, that's close to their kids' schools. It's a little bit easier to get to, but it's still a really nice building, right? So, for example, in Atlanta, you might live, you know, an hour from downtown. Atlanta is so sprawling. But you might not want to kind of drive all the way in five days a week to go downtown when you haven't been doing that for two years. But if there's an office building that's pretty nice with amenities, you know, 10 minutes down the road, you're probably more likely to want to go there. Yeah. We'll see whether this bet actually works, but it is a really interesting kind of shift that office landlords and investors are thinking, okay, how how can we make the office work for people? How can we kind of make this a good investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like a smart move because rather than fighting your workers, you're trying to meet them where they are and people generally like that. You also, you broke news about another major deal last week. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, So this was a retail deal in LA. Um, A company called Unibail Redemco Westfield sold off a 1.5 million square foot mall in Arcadia, which is a city in LA, for $538 million. And Eastill Secured, which brokered the deal, said that it was the largest retail deal in the US since 2018. Which is really interesting because, you know, there's been so much discourse around is retail dead? Do people want to go to malls? We don't know the buyer yet. The deed hasn't been recorded yet. But it is interesting that an investor is choosing to bet on retail and, you know, wants that asset in their portfolio. You know, this move for Westfield comes as they're trying to sell off all of their other U.S. assets. So they're really saying we want no part in U.S. retail anymore. They might keep a couple of flagship locations. They have a big property in San Francisco. They have um, Westfield Century City, which has a lot of high-end retailers. But it'll be interesting to see if they continue this sell-off with suburban retail assets and whether or not other investors will kind of want that in their portfolio. So it is kind of the shift, you know, seeing what different investors want to bet on. Right. And I feel like the other thing we wanted to mention, sort of like the oddity of the week, is that this co-working startup, The Wing, just very abruptly shut down. And I know you're a little more familiar with them than me. So can you can you talk a bit about what happened there? So The Wing was founded in 2016, and it was hailed as this women's-only co-working social club space where women could go and socialize, and I think there was food and drink, and you could work, and you could network. And at its peak, they had 11 locations across the country, and they then downsized to six in New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. But they definitely had some ups and downs along the way. They faced really serious financial trouble that started when WeWork divested their stake in them, which dropped their valuation to $200 million from $365 million in 2018. They said that their revenue dropped by 95% in the pandemic because it was forced to close its co-working space and lay off employees. And in 2020, the New York Times reported that there were allegations of racism and workplace discrimination against employees of color at the wing, which eventually led to the, one of the co-founders stepping down. Then last week, IWG, which is the parent company of the Wing, sent an email to all of the Wing's members saying that they were shutting down all of their locations effective immediately. They could use any of 
IWG's other co-working spaces, but they would no longer have access to the wing. It didn't, it no longer existed. So it was a pretty abrupt and, you know, dramatic end for what was a pretty big roller coaster, but, you know, they had definitely been trying to hold on for a couple of years there. So jumping into the August issue of The Real Deals magazine, which is the focus of this episode, uh, our story for that, reported by Joe Lovinger, was about real estate's top earners. The cover art on the magazine was great, by the way. It was this, yeah. for li- any listeners who didn't see it, it was this gold big dollar sign on a coin and then it had faces of a bunch of real estate CEOs and brokers around the coin in a circle and there were piles of cash everywhere it was great yeah it was definitely extra so it had like Compasio, Robert Rafkin, the Vincinski brothers, Steve Roth everybody was there so I don't want to give too much away. Joe Lovinger a reporter for The Real Deal in New York as we mentioned is with us today to talk about the story when you say COVID changed everything, um, you know, I'm thinking back to March, April 2020, we saw a lot of companies, you know, decide that they weren't going to give their executives any sort of bonuses, any sort of compensation. They were cutting salaries. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? When the pandemic first hit, you know, companies weren't just concerned that they wouldn't be able to, you know, actually pay these huge compensation packages. But they also recognized that it would be a really bad PR move to sort of, you know, give these huge bonus packages to their executives while their employees were struggling to make ends meet. Um, And so there were a lot of, you know, not just bonus cuts, but also um, elective salary cuts. Um, Sometimes salaries were decreased by as much as 50% um, in real estate uh, firms. And so that really changed though, um, relatively quickly, you know, into the pandemic, a lot of firms started to actually see their stock value rise a lot. And especially in the industrial space, executives were, you know, watching their stocks do better than ever. So pretty quickly for certain firms, um, compensation bounced back a lot. And that was what we saw in 2021 was that these large bonus packages were back across the board. Salaries were restored to their regular levels. For some firms, you know, who just enjoyed monumentally good years, you know, of, of stock value increases, they even saw those, you know, increase a lot. Even for, you know, firms where their share value fell and didn't totally recover, you know, office REITs or hotel companies, you know, their executives didn't get as hurt, you know, paycheck wise as you might have expected. Um, because the way that a lot of them determine their pay is through a metric called relative share price performance. And so they're comparing how they're performing to their peers. And so it's not necessarily a huge deal if your shares are down, if all of your competitors' shares are down even more. Um, And that way, the compensation is sort of, you know, it takes into account these larger macroeconomic variables. Even companies where, you know, their long-term outlook is a little bit skewed, things like offices, hotels, the executives were still able to recover most of their compensation. Got it. That's that's really interesting. And obviously, there were some companies who sold their stock just skyrocket, even you know, without comparing it to their peers. Um, so Prologis was an example of that, and that firm's CEO um, was the highest paid CEO of any REIT that you analyzed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, if you had to pick, 
you know, a sector of, of real estate, you know, if, if I gave you a hundred dollars before the pandemic and I said, invest this in something, you would have been really happy if you had invested that in industrial real estate. And then within that set, if you had picked Prologis, you would have been thrilled. Um, you know, they were trading around $63 a share at their pandemic rock bottom, you know, right after, you know, the initial shock, but really quickly, you know, by July of 2020, they had already returned to their, you know, pre-pandemic highest share price. And then, you know, by the end of 2021, they had hit $168 a share. So, I mean, just massive growth during the pandemic, 63 a share to 168 a share, you know, in a, in a very quick period of time. So already, you know, Hamid Mogadam, the Prologis CEO, um, was, you know, in for a great compensation package. Um, but he also took a pretty novel approach, I found, um, looking through their, their filings. You know, most every executive, as I've mentioned, makes the majority of their compensation through equity, not salary. But um, Mogadam decided in 2019 to actually decrease his salary from $1 million to $1 and to take the remaining $999,999 in equity. So every year since Prologis IPO'd, he's taken 100% of his bonus in equity. So he really like lets it all ride on his performance. He, you know, believes in himself or, you know, has the money that he needs right now and just says, you know, let's, let's see where this will go, you know, and it's actually his second year as the highest paid um, REIT CEO. Um, he made even more in uh, 2020. I wanted to kind of jump into brokerages. We've been talking a lot about REITs. Um, and there, you know, from your article, it looks like they structured their compensation a little bit differently. And there's more kind of of those massive bonuses. Um, is that something that you found? Yeah, brokerages were interesting this year. If you look at the residential brokerages, we have a lot more information now than we did like five or 10 years ago because we've seen... IPOs from companies like Douglas Element and Compass. And so we've been able to get a look inside how they determine their compensation. And also we can track in real time, essentially, um, the value of these bonuses. It's one thing if you, you know, have all of your shares and you're, you're, you know, an industrial REIT, but it's another if you're a residential brokerage. I mean, all of their, you know, all of these residential brokerages shares have struggled in the last year, pretty much. So while someone like Hamid Mogadam saw his you know, shares really appreciate in value, Robert Refkin, for example, is sort of the opposite of that. Um, so that's definitely different. And I did find one of the most impressive bonuses in all of real estate um, on the brokerage side. Uh, Howard Lutnick, who recently you know, beat cancer and, and um, you know, runs Newmark and Cantor Fitzgerald, um, they decided to grant him a one-time $50 million bonus. Um, he got $20 million up front, and then the remaining $30 million will pay out um, in a series of three annual payments of $10 million, so long as he stays in essentially his current role for the company. So, you know, I think that that was the most impressive example of sort of the golden handcuffs that I, that I saw uh, while I was doing this story. So another thing that, you know, I don't see a lot of the time in SEC filings is, you know, specific allowances for executives um, or kind of specific perks. You don't see that a lot, but you managed to find a pretty interesting one with Howard Lorber. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So this was one of my favorite 
uh, pieces of working on the story. It's these things called perquisites. It was a new word for me. But um, they're essentially these non-money perks that companies will give to their executives. Um, and generally, the industry is trending away from these. I think it's sort of part of that COVID PR adjustment that a lot of companies made, you know, just seems a little bit exorbitant to, you know, be paying for private jets and all these things. That said, you know, Howard Lorber has one of the more impressive perquisite packages that I found. Um, not only does he have a car and driver, which are, is fairly standard as far as these things go, but um, they also cover one club membership. Um, they don't specify if it's a golf club or a tennis club or a swim club, but he gets one club membership and up to $200,000 a year in private jet usage. Right. So tell me a little bit how about how you kind of went about doing this. Did you actually ask, you know, any company, hey, can you, you know, disclose this? Or did you go straight to the SEC filings? Yes, I made a lot of uncomfortable phone calls where I said, hey, man, tell me what you make. And, you know, I tried to do, yeah, I, was, I was smoother than that, but it, it wasn't smooth enough. I didn't really get much that way. Um, but, you know, uh, people are willing to talk about the general trends. I discovered this entire, you know, field of work that I didn't even know existed before this. But when I was looking through these filings, I noticed that all of these companies were retaining what are called compensation consultants. And it's essentially, you know, people whose whole job is to help companies figure out how much to compensate their executives so that they are not going to jump ship so that they're happy, but that their shareholders will also be happy. So, you know, a lot of your story was around public um, companies, right? So, you know, how much of this are CEOs of REITs and brokerages making? There are so many real estate firms that are private, right? Are, are those just numbers that, you know, we're just going to have to guess at? Yeah, there are ways that you can make estimates with some of these positions, like with, um, you know, star real estate brokers, you can figure out, okay, well, this is sort of the standard commission that companies charge. This is the standard split that they can pull. And you can do these back of the napkin estimates. I tried to do that with a few. And even though it's not perfect, it helps you get a range. Um, and it, it was, you know, one of the interesting things working on this piece was looking at sort of this explosion of real estate agents in the past couple of years. It's like everyone suddenly wants to sell homes. And part of that is shows like million dollar listing where it looks like this easy, glamorous lifestyle. Um, and part of it, I think, is, you know, during the pandemic, real estate's gotten so hot, people are like, well, why, you know, why can't I sell a home? But what I found is that, you know, unless you're like one of the top, top, top agents, it's really hard to make anything close to million dollar listing level of, um, you know, income selling homes when it comes down to it, because you have to split it with so many different um, stakeholders. There's the other agent, there's the brokerage, there's often now new agents will join teams so that they can, you know, get more deal flow. But with that comes its own splits. So, you know, I, I looked a lot at real estate agent compensation and um, especially on the luxury uh, real estate side of things. And there are some interesting trends underway where the way that luxury agents are paid might be changing. Um, we saw recently one of the Hamptons' biggest luxury brokerages, um, which is called Bespoke, they cut their commission to 1%. 
and you know, for for those listening, typically a commission can be anywhere from like three to six percent. Um, you know, it might get on the lower end of that range if it's a luxury home, but still, you're never really dipping below three. But Bespoke basically said, look, you know, we're dealing with high-end buyers. These are people who know how to deal with data sets. They can do a lot of their research on their own with the internet, with Zillow, and you know, the services that that a real estate agent provides, regardless of the price point, don't justify sort of these multi-million dollar commissions. And, you know, so you hear that and you think to yourself, okay, well, that's really nice of them. But also, it's a great way for them to tie up listings. Because if I'm selling my home and I can save millions of dollars in commission fees, why wouldn't I list with them? The idea is that, you know, if this catches on with sellers, then other luxury real estate agents will have to copy them. Don't forget, Deconstruct is every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we're talking about studio and soundstage investment across the country and to Adam Gordon of Wildflower, which is investing heavily in studio real estate. Tune in then.